0: Hey Geekscapists, I'm sitting here in the office of my good friend Jack Kenny for a brand new Geekscape episode. We talk movies, video games, comic books, pop culture, all that stuff. And I like to sit down every week with a storyteller to talk about um, maybe the latest in what's going on in our industry. Um, But Jack and I have been friends for a couple years. And uh, for those uninitiated, he was the showrunner on, I think, Warehouse 13 would be where the geeks... Uh, would be most familiar with him, Warehouse 13 on on Sci-Fi, and most recently I saw Jack's name pop up on episode four of Jessica Jones season two. Yep, what that you, was me. What you got going on? We're in your house? You, there, there no, will I'm just be, going to shut the door. There so. will be disturbances. Yeah, sorry. Right, watch this. There we what go. Is the, now it's not. There it is. I wanted to foley,
1: the door closing, so that you know.
0: <laughs> so so um, so Jack and I we meet for lunch. How often do we meet for lunch? It's been, uh, it's been a while this past time. Two or three months. Every, every two, three months. every two and three, or three months, we, we sit at his reserve. When you table. really start missing me, <laughs> you text me, which is great. I know. I, was like, I texted you. said, can have lunch tomorrow.
1: He was like, yeah. I said, okay. I can't. <laughs>
0: yeah. um. that was a mean trip. <laughs> and so I'm so Jack sorry. so Jack will text me, and or I'll text Jack, and we'll sit for lunch, and catch up on what he's writing, what I'm writing, uh, and we'll talk writing. Which mm-hmm. I think is... But you you recently did some directing.
1: I did. I directed a short film that I wrote. Um, it was based on a play that I wrote 10 years ago about my uh, a couple of relatives that came to visit me for what felt like a year one weekend.
0: Are you serious? Uh,
1: and at the end, uh, <laughs> 20 minutes in, I wanted to kill them both. Um, which I'm sure no one can relate to on your audience. I'm sure nobody's <laughs> ever wanted to... Ruthlessly murder a relative. <laughs>
0: so ten years, ago, so about ten years ago, you wrote this play. Did the play ever go up?
1: Yeah, but it, uh, it was um, at the time it was called Circus Theatricals. Now it's a New American Theater. Okay. Um, this guy I went to college with, I uh, went to Juilliard uh, uh, acting school with uh, Jack Stalin. He and, and his wife Janine run this fantastic uh, um, repertory theater and school here in L.A. called New American Theater. They just moved to back over to the Hollywood area. Um, anyway, he. Right after my aunts visited in, in, in some way to calm my husband down, who was really shaking with anger at the way they treated him. <laughs> he, when did this happen? This when, was, is the, this was when
0: was the original incident?
1: 2005, I would say. And are
0: your aunts still with us?
1: One is not. Okay. So and, you're, and one won't care.
0: Okay, so these it. are your mother's sisters? My father's sisters. My father's, my father's. And yeah. sisters. And, yeah. and they come for a weekend. Yes. And, I mean, and your they, home, this is the home that they come visit Yeah, they were here.
1: Okay. And and you've been to my house. It's a nice. It's a three story uh, house in Los Feliz. And it's huge. honestly, we pulled into the driveway, and the first thing they said was, "Ugh, I bet there's a lot of stairs in there." And it was that kind of a weekend of.
0: Are they bigger uh, women? No, 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 they're not. It wasn't. So they can it's do it's not.
1: A, it's not a size issue. It's it's a communications issue. Their their preferred mode of communication is to complain. Is to complaint. <laughs> it's it's companyese. They speak companies. and um, it's it's very. Um, it just gets exhausting after a while, right. you know. Everything is like, you know, they're like, "Why your black t-shirt and a black pair of pants? What? You couldn't think of another color?" Yeah. I mean, everything.
0: This is all colors. Yes, it's, <laughs> this it's, is well, all colors. No, color. You had that argument
1: with him. Good luck with that.
0: <laughs> it wouldn't get me um, very far. Yeah,
1: it would just not. It's not worth it. It's not worth going down the road. So they. I mean, you know, I, I remember Michael trying to be kind and say, "So what kind of wine would you like to? I can get some kind of wines for you." Uh, we only drink white Merlot. Mike said, um, "Merlot is is red." yeah, maybe in Hollywood. <laughs>
0: Where are they from?
1: Chicago. Okay, so
0: they're from Chicago. Chicago. And Chicago's flat, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it's pretty flat. Hence, yeah. hence the Windy
1: City. And,
0: and, and hence them looking at a, a, a house built on a hillside. And well, they grew, up to, on one, they grew up on one level. Yeah, they, not anticipating uh, stairs. I think there was. I think
1: there were stairs to the basement to their crafting room, but mostly...
0: <laughs> Just your driveway goes I, up 100 feet.
1: I know, I know. <laughs> and listen, it's, but I drove them up that. And I took them to see <laughs> Wicked um, down at the Pantages and... I had front row mezzanine seats for Wicked, which is you know good seats. Great. And uh, we walked in the theater, and they said, "So where are we? A front row mezzanine? Like upstairs? <laughs> they got an elevator? No, it's, <laughs> no. A, it's a hundred year old theater. They got stairs. Sorry." <laughs> uh, so it was always it was everything. It was a, a weekend of complaints. So. In order to get over this weekend, um, I, my, I, said, I said to Michael, "Let's just make a list of everything they said." Okay. My, my mom was with us too, because she knew them. She knew them when, when oh, younger. She, she, was she, 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 we, she was laughing at her ass off the whole time. Like, I know these women. I'm just gonna say <laughs> over here. I'm gonna hide over here. And so we made this long, like, four-page list of everything they said. Like, your toilet seat's too small. <laughs> stuff like
0: that. <laughs> the reverse not being that your ass is too big. No, many. no.
1: They, uh, that would never occur to them. <laughs> occur to them. But so, uh, you know, all these complaints. And honestly, within a, like, within a couple hours later, my friend Jack calls and says, hey, we're doing this one-act play festival, comedy play. You got, you got anything? I said, you know <laughs> yeah. what? Give me a couple hours. I'll call you back. And I just fashioned it into a 15-minute play of their arrival into the kitchen and the discussion that happens. And and uh, we put it up at the, It was a curtain opener For the first act The first night of the plays And it was gangbusters It went huge because, because A. I'm not a bad writer I come up with some funny stuff And B. Everybody has that experience Right the, To me the most the, the best The most successful of anything Movie, TV, film, play Is, is um, Relatable experiences Sure and, and also big budget But you know <laughs> If you can't afford The $200 million on your movie A relatable experience Will get you down the road right and so i think relatable characters people you know people that you know you can so it went very well and then a few months ago i think in october my friend braxton Molinaro, who's a young actor here in la um and also a producer he produced an album called guns about um i was telling you at lunch about gun violence and guns and the guns in the country and all that sort of thing. it's a great album he just shot his first music video on it and um and so he said, I, I want to produce a, a, a short film because I need some film on myself as an actor. I'm, you know, He's been here a year and a half, and he having trouble getting arrested like everybody else who's been here a year and a mm-hmm. half. And uh, I said, sure, I've got this script um, of this guy and his two aunts. And he read it, and he was, oh, my God, this is great. What can we, uh, who are we going to get to play the ladies? And I said, well, let me, let me poke around, and I sent it to my friend Jane Lynch, who said yes immediately. And then I sent it to, uh, I was thinking, the person who would compliment her best is Kate Mulgrew. Who i did warehouse 13 with mm-hmm. and i sent it to kate and i said well first i sent her a text saying hey any chance you're going to be in l.a anytime in the next three or four months and she said why and i said well there's this movie that i'm shooting a short film you'd be really funny in one of the parts She said well send it to me and i sent it to her and she called me on the phone she said i'll come to l.a for this when do you want me to be there
0: well wow, wow. And i said
1: well we'd like to do it like the third week of january she said okay i'll clear those dates from orange is a new black i'll be there and I said, well, you can stay in our guest room if you want. She said, good. That'll save me some money. I'll stay in your guest room, and I'll fly myself out to L.A., and all done. And so she came out, and the two of them were great. And they're both Midwest ladies. Right. Where's so Jane, they know these Jane women.
0: Jane Lynch is where she from. Jane's
1: from Chicago. Right. And Kate's from Iowa. I mean, okay. they know these women. They, know, cause they, cause they both read it, and they said, oh, these, we know these women. I know these women. We know what they're like. And, you know, and I in my script, they're a little more... Uh, exactly. I mean for lack of a better word racist than <laughs> than they were in real life, sure, but at the same time, people like that who use terms like that i i don 't believe they mean it in a necessarily derogatory way they 're compartmentalizing they compartmentalize everyone in their lives you 're the fat one you 're right. the short one you 're the you 're the oriental one sure. you 're the black guy you 're the i mean I mean, we have a president now who does that. Sure. You know, you're the crippled guy. You're the, you know, that's what they do. They make fun. I those mean, are the yeah. words that make fun of people, you yeah. know. And they, and those, are, but, but my aunts would never make fun of somebody. They it's would never the use it. It's just the language that my, they grew up learning. It's grand the language they spoke.
0: My grandmother in Groom, Texas, uh, I don't think I've ever told this story on Geekscape. Geekscapist, but my grandmother, my father's mother, when she got put in a home finally, and she had to move out of Groom, she moved to Amarillo. This is around the time that Oprah had her lawsuit against... The, the Cattle Ranchers. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Remember when Oprah went out against steaks or, you know, red meat or something? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The, yeah, the yeah. Cattle, no the cattle Ranchers here. sued her. They had to try the case in, in Amarillo, and Oprah had to shoot her show in Amarillo. And my grandmother, in the last years of her life, would go on these walks around the neighborhood. And she kept telling my aunts and my father about the really nice... N word lady, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. It, it's like, oh my god! Like she was born in 1909, 1910. Yeah, of course. So well, that's, like, uh, I mean, it was holy in books. shit! And Mark, Mark like, Twain
1: used it in books. It's not like it was a word that wasn't very commonly used on both sides of the fence. But the the but it was
0: Oprah. It was Oprah she was talking about. She would see Oprah on her walks and yeah. to refer to her as the nice uh, that nice N no, no, word lady. lady. Yeah. and it's like, oh, Granny, you can't say that. But I mean, how much do you? When she can't even recognize her own grandkids at that point? Like, yeah. how much can you possibly Yeah, you're not so gonna,
1: She's not going to make any movement on, on <laughs>
0: Rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic.
1: You're not going to get any yardage out of that conversation. Yeah. And, and my you know, and my mom, whenever she would... You know, rest her soul, my mom was the most loving, sweet, gentle person you could ever want to meet. But when she would describe someone who was who was black, she would say, Oh, yes, there's this lovely woman I work with. She's black. And I would say, Mom, you, you don't have to whisper. She knows it. And probably everybody knows it. It's not... You don't have Everybody with a blind. She, she dude. would say it's, She would whisper it like, "I don't want to sound offensive." Like, yeah, but the whispering is what makes it sound offensive. If you just say she's black, then you're just describing someone the way they look. You're not saying, "I have an opinion about her. She's black." You know, it's just that's an, that's an opinionated statement. But so, but again, there's not the idea of any kind of. Uh, of, of negative energy from in that direction right. would never cr- cross these women's mm. minds. Right. It's all just descriptive, like, oh yeah, you know, yes, the Jews are very good with money. Yes, the they, that's, it's,
0: yeah. The Jews. <laughs> the Jews.
1: Yeah, everything. I mean, it's like, it's, it's just, it's old stereotypes that have a style. And listen, you see those stereotypes. That we were talking before. I saw, I've been watching Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, yeah. the new one. Those stereotypes are, you should pardon the expression, raging. Across that show, right. there is one character who could not be more of a stereotyped gay man. Now, I, I don't, I don't have any issue with him doing it that way. I don't like to watch it; it makes me uncomfortable. I imagine this current generation th- has their own opinion of it. I don't know, but in it, so to me, there is too gay. Well, it, it's not that he's too gay. It's that I, it feels to me like he's putting it on right. for the show. He's. Playing this almost minstrel-level gay character—that it's a minstrel show. I always thought Will and Grace was a little bit of a minstrel show. Okay. It's you know, listen—if if a character can walk in the door, sashay across the room, flounce onto the sofa, flip his legs up in the air and cross them, and get applause and a standing ovation—that's a minstrel show. That's not a story point. That's not a joke. That's I'm laughing at how gay he is. That's what they—that's what they often do on Will and Grace, and that's one of the reasons I have trouble with it. But you're you're friends
0: with Will. I know, and Eric's a great guy. Yeah,
1: he didn't he didn't write he didn't write it. He just and he plays the he plays the less version of that. And I I think and Eric's a great guy. Listen, I think imagine Sean Hayes is a great guy. It's just my own personal taste. I'm not taking issue with them. I don't want to start a protest or a movement or a boycott. That Will and Grace did more for the for the advancement of same-sex marriage probably than anything in the last 20 years. Well, if Will yeah. and Grace hadn't been on the air, Michael and I wouldn't be married today. You, I recognize really? their value. Absolutely. I, I don't know enough about it to. Well, they made it okay cuz to me everything changes with societal mores, right? It, it, the Supreme Court does its thing per its per its rulings and precedents and laws, but you can't deny that What's happening in the world influences the way they think, sure, and I think most people after before Will and Grace, I think people thought, no, marriage is a man and a woman. And after Will and Grace, people thought, "Ah, eh, they seem okay. let yeah. them do what they want. It's fine. I mean, they're not they seem like people like you and me and And I think that's a huge step when you make when you normalize something. I don't know what what baffles me. And, and by the way, I I, I still applaud them. I, I hope they stay on the air. I, I, I just for me, it's just not my kind of thing. Same thing with Queer Eye. Great, they're doing it. Fantastic. It's just not my. It's just it sits badly with me because of my own past experiences and what I've been through in the way it filters through my filter. Mm-hmm. You know. So like I say, I'm not I'm not I don't want to start anything. No,
0: you're not. Yeah, you're not. I'm not. The, I'm not. I, 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 bravo. Right. But
1: what what baffles me is why we haven't been able to do the same thing with race. Why is this country still so racist? I mean, I imagine there's plenty of homophobia, especially across, uh, you know, the, the red states, but it feels like racism, it feels to me weird, in a weird way, worse than it was in the 60s and 70s. It feels like there's that people feel, and maybe it's because of this whole Trump movement, that people feel more of a, of, a, of an ability to say what they want to say about race and, and, and you know, uh, political correctness be damned. But I feel like racism and sexism too. I would, I would not leave out sexism. I mean, we we showed in the last election that we're actually more sexist than racist. We, el- we elected a black president, but we wouldn't have elected a woman.
0: Right. W- w- would you say that a lot of that is just how much you're being barraged by in the increase in, of, of media messages? That I mean, the difference between the 60s and 70s and today is it it may have... I mean, I don't know if it got better or if it got worse. I know we're getting more of it. Does that make sense? We're it might more be. There, there may be it. more information. There may be just
1: more information and more uh, news. You hear more news now. I mean, I don't remember there being that much uh, child abuse when I was growing up. I'm sure there was the same amount. It's just you would hear about it all now. Right. Uh, you know, same thing. But uh, Although nobody went in and shot up schools when I was growing up. I don't remember that even being a... I don't remember an incident. Wasn't Columbine one of the first major incidences of that yeah. happening in this country? So. Things do
0: change suddenly. I mean, that's become a thing now. You didn't have that, but you did have the the UT Tower, right? You did. You did I mean, what's the, uh, what's the UT Tower? The, the, the University of Texas. When the guy got up there in '67 or so, and oh yeah, yeah, yeah it, yeah, was, yeah, it shot his mom and then shot a bunch of students on the University. There of were Texas. there were small, there were right. you know, isolated
1: incidents like that. But it, it, there's something that feels almost normalized about it now. Mm-hmm. You know, you you know, hear oh, a newscaster say, every saying, other day we've had we have another school shooting and blah blah. Like, what that would be. He, that, would be the UT, that would be huge news. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, there, it happened again. And so I think society has changed a little bit, and in some ways for the better and in some ways for the worse. And and so, and I don't know if the information age is what... The, I don't know if that allows people who want to do that kind of thing to find emotional support for it. Maybe Maybe the fact that we have such social networking and such internet connectivity between each other, it allows somebody who wants to... Do something like that. Find others who can support his views, and that he, or she, or hers. Right. I don't think there's been a single female school shooter. Um, but <laughs> right, it's correct. Just, yeah, but it, but it feels to me like, and maybe you're right. Maybe it's because there's so much information out there, and there's so much uh news that that we just hear about it more, and it feels more fa- more powerful. But I don't know. It 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 feels to me like same sex marriage made great strides very quickly, and. It feels to me like civil rights and and women's rights have in some ways taken some steps backward, and I don't understand
0: why. Including the eight years under Obama? Um, did, not necessarily. You, you said I mean, like, that's how this could feel like a
1: regression. It feels like that. Like, I think we're feeling it more now because what Trump did was unleash that sort of darkness in his base. Right. He, he unleashed that kind of, yeah, it's okay for me to say I hate blank. Right. It's okay for me to... To, you know, to wear a Nazi armband if I want. Not pay taxes, you know? right? Yeah, yeah. But but um, I think it was there during... I think it was bubbling during Obama, maybe even because of Obama. Right. I, I'm sure there was a very virulent strain of racism happening because we had a black president, and there was a resentment because of it, and it bubbled over finally in 2016 with Trump, basically giving voice or giving you know, support and credence to that kind of thinking. Not specifically. he would never... He would never say that but but Donald Trump has always been a racist. He went after the central Park five his, mm-hmm. his father and he had all those problems the with, real the, with estate. apartment yeah. apartment complexes and not and, and, I mean it's been you know I wouldn't say that he's you know I, he's a racist.
0: I'm sorry, but he's a racist. but he's, like your argument with the 60s and 70s, the platform has just gotten more accessible. Well I think sounds like now there's now the, whatever microphone you have, is a bigger microphone.
1: Yeah, that is absolutely the case. And I think the 60s and 70s was the first time it felt like there could be equality. Right. There wasn't, and there were still all kinds of problems, especially in the South, but the 60s and 70s, was the the mid-60s, you know, Johnson and his his great society and and passing civil rights legislation felt like the first time we were saying, oh, we can fix this. We can erase the shame of our country you know, since slavery and the civil war and, and the Jim Crow laws, we can we can start to erase a little of that shame by making strides in the other direction. It felt like for the first time that might happen. And then and then entertainment took up that that uh, baton and ran with it. Norman Lear changed the conversation, you know, by 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 putting those shows on the air and by and by putting those conversations in people's living rooms that they weren't having those conversations. What before.
0: kind of shows are you talking about? What, all, the family, all the family Maud, mm-hmm.
1: the Jeffersons uh, one, uh, um, um, oh, I don't remember all the names of the shows. Uh, Dynamite. What was? Uh, oh,
0: that I thought uh, that. Oh man, that was not the Jeffersons. No,
1: it was. Um, uh, it was uh, good some, times. Day, good
0: times. Yeah. Um show, I mean, that was
1: that was the first black family in the living room. Right. You know. Now, Dick Van Dyke did something in the '60s that I thought was incredibly progressive. Dance with Penguins. Was that the...
0: <laughs> I was making a joke about Mary Poppins. Oh, no, no. Well, that would be progressive
1: in a different way. But no, they did There was an episode of Dick Van Dyke when they first brought their son home from the hospital. Okay. And and Dick was convinced that they'd switched babies in the hospital. It was a huge mistake. And he was he was, he was was panicked about it. And Laura kept saying, this is our baby. Would you relax? I know this is our baby. I can feel it. He said, no, no, no. I want to meet... Because they, and he had somehow... This other couple that was there, that, that he, he had got contact at the hospital, and there was another couple there who took their home, baby home at the same time. He said, let's just meet them. Let's meet them, and, you know, we'll see, we'll see. And they came to the door, and Dick opened the door, and he just started laughing. It was a black couple. <laughs> right. So he knew that they had the right babies. Right, right, and the right. black couple started laughing, too, because they knew what he was asking, and so it was all this. So it was really, it was the first time that not only do we have a racial issue front and center, but they were laughing about it. They right. made fun of it on both sides. We both saw it was silly. We both enjoyed that part of our ourselves.
0: And Captain Kirk is kissing all sorts of different colored women. Yeah, yep, yeah, that right. was true. Including but that, was, in but her that was the future. Right, getting the- away
1: with an awful lot of shit in the future.
0: <laughs> um, how much responsibility do you feel in 2016, 2017 to put those kind of social issues in your work? Because uh, we we had a Jessica Jones special where we looked at episode, season two, and. I, I believe you all wrote that season prior to this, but, I mean, clearly it was bubbling. Um, oh, we
1: wrote we wrote season two. Jessica Jones started we, in June of 2016, and we, we finished the script since December of 2016.
0: So the tail end of it, the elections happened, all this stuff, but you guys were before the Me Too movement, all that stuff, and yeah. there's a ton of stuff in Jessica Jones season two where well, some, some guy calls her a bitch or calls her something, yeah. and she stops and she's like... I'm going to smash your head against the mirror. Well, that was always our
1: our interpretation of the character was that she was incredibly powerful, incredibly strong, not just as a superhero, but just as a woman. And that she would not take any shit from anybody. None of them would. None of the female characters on the show did. Carrie Ann Moss didn't. Um, I mean, a a big lesbian character, a big open lesbian character that didn't take shit from anybody. Powerful, rich, um, incredibly good at her job. I mean, that was another character, Trish, again, trying to be way more than just a radio talk show host about no, social issues.
0: She starts to become Hellcat it feels yeah. like in the middle yeah. of this.
1: So, so it's always been a show that embraced and, and forwarded the notion of strong, powerful, smart women who can run the world and run their world as easily as male characters. Mm-hmm. The male characters, if anything, with the the, 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 the the sidekicks and the bad guys and the you know lower levels. I don't think there is a strong... There's not a strong male character that I can think of on the show that is in in the limelight in front and center, that it's all it's all forwarded by women. To be
0: if you know well, uh, I feel like the neighbor I mean you're co EP on this series, correct? Malcolm?
1: You mean her assistant?
0: No, no, uh, no, I think uh, i was, Oscar, I, was, the, uh, uh, I super... feel like Oscar is doing the best by his son, which yes. is which is like its own strength, its own oh, absolutely. thing going on. Well I'm not and saying they're not good characters. Like,
1: yeah. There are plenty of good male characters. Strong, sure. Malcolm is trying to be his best and learn to be a PI. I mean there are there are plenty of strong male characters somehow they don't feel as strong as the women, which I think is cool and interesting. Mm-hmm. And what, it's what excited me when I watched season one. It's what made me interested in doing the show and becoming involved with the show. Is I loved that take on the world. I mean, I, it's one of the reasons I made um, H.G. Wells a woman mm-hmm. in Warehouse 13, because it felt to me like, let's shake it up. Let's shake up history a little bit. There's no, I mean, you know, we, had a, we had a very logical past for that character. And, and uh, you know, we were trying to spin it off into a series. Uh, HG and, That's and to, cool. to make her eighteen an 1895 sort of New York City Sherlock Holmes. Uh-huh. She teamed up with a with a um, uh, an ex New York City cop who got fed up with the corruption of the New York City Police Department in the 1890s, and um, and her she and him were going to solve crimes. And our big bad for
0: season one was uh, Thomas Edison. Did and you see the Have you seen the photo of Mark Twain with with Tesla? Oh, yeah, I have. I think and, I have like, seen that that's picture. A, like, that felt like a series to me. There's an actual historic well, yeah. photo of yeah. Tesla... With Mark Twain and I was like, what adventures did they? What mysteries I, did they solve? I think if
1: Houdini and Doyle had been successful, we'd be able to do Twain and Tesla. Yeah, there is a. But,
0: there was a show, wasn't there, recently where it was Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle yeah, teaming up.
1: Yeah, Houdini and Doyle, and I it think didn't it was, do well. I didn't really. see it. I, I don't. I don't know anything about it. you a the cool problem.
0: Idea. <laughs> you were part of the problem. I'm yeah. Not kidding.
1: Who knows? But it's it's. Uh, um, I we were, ABC wanted to do HG. Mm-hmm. And they weren't, but they wanted us to get a British partner uh, to, to produce it with us. And it would have been a
0: spinoff from a Sci-Fi Channel show.
1: Um, it, not a spinoff per se. It would have been. It was a whole new take on the character.
0: So you, so you were jazzed about H.G. Wells whenever you did Warehouse 13, and were like, right, I've got a million more stories I can take yeah. this.
1: Yeah, we had a lot of good, cool stories for mm-hmm. her, and but we could not get a British broadcaster on board. We went to all four of them. And they all said no for various reasons. And we had a we had who ABC. Was the ABC, ABC said, "You're on the air. If you get a British partner, you're on the air for, for ten episodes this summer." And uh, they, we just couldn't get them. And I think they would never admit this, but I think they didn't like us making their HG Wells a woman. I think it was like, "No, you're you're fucking with our history. He's one of our heroes. You're not going to make him a woman." That's Britain. I think I mean, yeah. and I can't. I can't necessarily say that if somebody came here and said, "I want to do a series about Abe Lincoln, but he was a girl, and uh, he was a lesbian,"
0: he we put on wore the fake beard, and I
1: think people might go, mm, "Sounds a little jokey." Do, yeah, <laughs> you know? I mean,
0: I, do, I mean, I know that the broccolis or the or the broccolis, but with something like uh, a franchise, which I uh, is you know how I think that it's, it's a dead deadish franchise to me is the the James Bond franchise. A black James Bond with like an Elba and something like that. Like something that would reinvigorate sure. Bond. Absolutely. Do you think that, that there is a similar protection? I no, I don't Because, because I, I know the Broccoli's own it. I know it's like it's like a family that owns James Bond, but
1: Right. But I think if you made it today, right. it would not be an issue. I think my issue was my I was saying that that I, I was I was screwing with the with the gender of their of their revered of one of their most revered uh, writers. Sure. And, you know, I think if I'd said Dickens was a was a woman, I'd have had the same problem. I think that they're saying, you're screwing with our history. I don't know that it's necessarily a misogynist attitude. I don't think they didn't like it because it was a woman. I think they didn't like it because I changed it. Right. And But I don't think, I think you could recognize doing that with Bond because Bond was always of his time. And I think to say that James Bond today was a black man, absolutely, why not? Because that's very much of his time. Because I'm sure there are black agents in the in the service in England. I don't sure. think there'd be an issue with it. But there weren't any. Well, there were famous female writers. Absolutely. Maybe if I'd done, you know, uh, Shelley, it would have been different. Yeah. Uh, you know, was but,
0: Mary Shelley popular before the before her? You know, with all those authors, you have to think of like them potentially only being famous after post mortem. Yeah. So like probably was, I don't you know. think basically. Shelley was popular upon publishing.
1: I think it was from from what I remember reading about it. It was a very successful novel when it came out.
0: Beatrix Potter, is a female. Was uh, that a dude with a name like Beatrix in Britain? You never think, tell if it's Beatrix a dude or Potter
1: not. Was, a, was a woman. Like now, now we had we had an artifact from Beatrix Potter, uh, her tea set. I think it's a woman. Beatrix Potter's tea set,
0: wasn't that it?
1: I, I have to look it up.
0: <laughs> Does that now make sense? So? I'm sorry, I'm starting to think about the yeah. other potential characters that. But, but the thing with H.G. Wells is it's sci-fi.
1: Yeah, well, it would, yeah. the thing that, that appealed to me about it is we were saying that here's this woman who has, the, who has this brilliant mind for science fiction, for invention, for, for imagining the future, and and in this world of Victorian England, she would never get the time of day. So she uses her brother as a front mm-hmm. to you know publish her stories, and he says, you'll be the face of H.G. Wells, that's fine. I just want to have the adventures and write about them. And she was okay with just living the life while Charles, her brother, did the actual publishing. It was the and, H.G. Wells we yes, know. Yes, he went to the cocktail parties and smiled and nodded and said, yes, thank you very much, thank you very much. And she was out there having the adventures, and she was fine with that setup. Uh, that's and a I cool a idea whole, for a series. I had a whole backstory plan of when H.G. Wells, when she was a child, broke her leg, because actually H.G. Wells, when he was a child, broke his leg, and he was bedridden for a year, and that's when he started thinking of all this stuff. And we had a relationship with her and Charles, where Charles took care of her. And we, we had a whole big, huge backstory planned. We'd see flashbacks of it and stuff. And, and um, no, in some day, listen, it's still timely. I'll be able to get it on the air eventually, I hope.
0: I think it's a cool idea. When you um, were a kid, were, were you into all that stuff? I mean, No, you, not at all. Like, what, when you grew up, like, what were you into? We
1: were playing cops and robbers in the woods. I mean, when I was a kid, you but know. But you want to be an actor. I did. I wanted to yeah. be an actor. I want to be a comedian, a comic actor. Not a comedian, but a comic actor. I wanted to be Groucho Marx, WC Fields, you know, that that those are my heroes.
0: Those were generations before you though. Like the, Yeah, like, but
1: still that's was on TV. I watched the Marx Brothers on TV. I watched WC Fields movies on TV. I I mean, remember when I grew up, there was no VHS. There was no movies on demand. You watched what was on when it was on. So you kept a close eye on the TV guide. And when you saw a Marx Brothers movie when I saw a Marx Brothers movie coming on, I made sure I was awake and in front of a TV set when it came on. Same thing right. with Fields or Buster Keaton or um, Chaplin. I was like, eh, I could take or leave Chaplin. He was fine, but it felt a little, he felt almost acrobatic to me.
0: I never, I always felt like Chaplin's stories never wrapped up sat- in a satisfying manner. I felt like like Keaton was always the guy who by the end of the movie, every loose end was going to be tied up. Yeah. But you have something like the, you know, with. I just remember watching the end of The Gold Rush. And the guy, the, the, the criminal murders a police officer. Yeah. And that's the last you see of him. Yeah. You never, the, the bad guy never gets his comeuppance at the end of the gold rush. And you realize that in the, the chaplain verse, there's, yeah. there's some police killer like wandering around somewhere, and Charlie Chaplin's just in there like like slurping, like like. It was sh- a simpler time. Sh- yeah, I was like, <laughs> "What are you doing? You're playing with potatoes." Yeah. Like, dude. well,
1: because because the the wisdom in the moment was people are more interested to see what happens to Charlie Chaplin than anybody else. Right. So follow his character and his character only, and don't worry about anybody else in the movie. And there was no such thing as thought of a sequel or a continuation or that that world existed beyond that movie. But, uh, um,
0: those are yeah, your was, heroes,
1: yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, Chaplin, I, I recognize the genius of Chaplin, of course, but it's he was never just, just never, I just never connected with Chaplin the way I did with Groucho and, and, uh, and W.C. Fields and, and, uh, Abin Costello, even Laurel mm-hmm. and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy to me were, I would watch, you know, there's, there's a mo- there's a movie, I don't remember the name of the movie, but there's a, there's a tickling sequence where this woman is trying to get this <coughs> deed out of Stan Laurel's pocket, mm-hmm. and the only way she can get to it is tickling him. And it is impossible not to watch that scene without laughing. Because Stan Laurel's laughter is just infectious. He's just <laughs> and he's just all over the place. And, right. and it's just the simplicity of those characters. There's a little dance that he and and he and Ollie do out in front of a saloon in one movie that you just can't take your eyes off of. But um yeah, they were my heroes and I and I was just sort of I wasn't into history at all. I mean, I liked history in school. I was very interested in that element of it, and I, I, I found that fascinating. But I didn't really, I didn't read comic books. But then, no, very few of my friends did. We all played outside all day. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get up, you get up Saturday morning, eight o'clock, and you head out. Right. You know, and you're out for the day. Same thing on Sunday. After church, I'm gonna go play in the woods. You have to get hosed down when you come back. Yeah, the poison yeah. ivy, get all the poison ivy off you. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, we just played outside all the time, so it wasn't. You know, there, there was TV, you know, on variously where we could watch certain things. But, you know, I remember asking to stay up to watch Red Skelton, which was on at eight thirty. Oh wow! Cause I had to be in bed. I had to be in bed by eight when I was that age.
0: When you um, so so, how did you get into writing?
1: Um, I was uh, I. When I'd always the way I got my first writing job
0: because it didn't sound. All I'm saying is it didn't sound like you grew up. Reading a lot of the stories or this and that. Yeah. I read.
1: I read about the same month that every kid had, okay. had read in the sixties. Um, I read the. I read the stuff we were supposed to read. and I read some other stuff. My father. I never read as, much as as much as my father wanted me to read because he mm. was always on me. Wanted you read more. You, you know, sit in front of that idiot box all day. You should read books. But you know, I made a lot. Of, I made a pretty good living on the idiot box. Yeah, but yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I. I um, take that. Dad. I started writing. I wrote some political stuff for a political cabaret we did in New York in the in the early eighties. And then I had an audition for a series called uh, Square One on PBS. It was a math series. Uh, math series. Reggie Cathy was in it, um, and, and um, who just recently passed away. Mm-hmm. Reggie was, played the um, uh, Frank Underwood's black friend on on uh, House of Cards. Oh wow! Uh, anyway, Reg was on that series, and a, a bunch of other people. And um, I had an audition for it when it first started and they said, bring in two monologues. And I'm like, what what, I, don't know what to write or I don't know what to bring in in monologue wise for a math series. So I wrote a couple, I wrote one monologue about all of the odd numbers going on strike to protest they're being called odd. And, um, Wonder where I got that, <laughs> and then uh, another a, model, uh, a scene a scene between Zero and his therapist because uh, he was in therapy about being feeling he was nothing, yeah, had, no, not... had no value, had no worth. That's <laughs> creative, and yeah, and they but they read those and they said we don't we have no interest in you as an actor, but as a writer we'd love to hire you to write some episodes, and that's when I joined the guild in '87 and started, and I wrote a bunch of episodes for uh, Square One, and then went back to acting. I got. I got cast in the national tour of Fiddler with Topol, and I toured with that for two years, and we did seven months on Broadway, and then uh, moved out to L.A. and started acting in L.A., and I was really bored acting in front of a camera, just bored out of my mind. Why? Because it's, it's just so sitting around, start and stop, start and stop. Well, start and stop and wait for this, wait for that, and the parts you get as a guest star or a day player are not usually that good, so it's mostly just waiting around. And while I was waiting, I just thought, I, can, I know I can write these sitcoms as well as I'm, the ones I'm auditioning for, so I wrote a couple specs. Uh, teamed up with a partner, met a couple of producers, and got a spec to them, and we ended up getting a job on Dave's World. My partner and I, and um, it was. What was I th- Dave's World. Dave's World was Harry Anderson, Mishak Taylor, and Shadow Stevens uh-huh. as uh, hippies raising kids, basically. Yeah. And and um, and it was uh, it was fun. It was at, two years on Dave's World, and then went to Carolina the City for two years. And I just liked writing because I didn't. Even before I got we got a job, I didn't have to ask anybody's permission to do it. No one had to hire me to do it. I could yeah, write okay anytime it, I wanted. Yeah, yeah. write whenever you want. You go to the Starbucks that like you're going to do after this. The party hey, bucks. Right.
0: The party bucks. Party bucks. There's a brand. What is it? A Starbucks Reserve? It's like a. It's like if a, a Starbucks had sex with an Apple Store and banged out a nightclub. That's what it feels yeah, like when go. you walk yeah. in there. I'm yeah. like, uh, this is not a typical Starbucks. I like. You to go there. by at night. It looks like Edward Hopper. It's totally. That, it's it, that, yeah. You know, if I'm not there, I'm at McDonald's. Oh, I write at McDonald's. That's less Edward hopper I know. I, yes. I just I find places that are busy and hostile, mm. the best places to write, because otherwise I'll take naps. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I'll just sleep if, if given you should, my... You should move to New York. Go. There's a <laughs> lot of places you oh, would write. I'd, You'd be I, very happy writing. I had to move out of New York. when I, I, I left Columbia as fast as I could because I was so... It, there was no off switch for that place. Yeah. It yeah. drove me crazy. Busy
1: and hostile most of the time. Mm-hmm. Not that it isn't the greatest city in the world. Don't write me letters. It's, <laughs> it's the greatest city in the world.
0: So, so you're writing on Carolina in the City, and then what point did you move to showrunner?
1: Um, well, Brian and I created a show called Titus mm-hmm. uh, for Fox in 99. It went on the air in 2000 and 2003, and that was our first show on the air. We ran that, and then after that, we were showrunners. And we ran, we ran uh, Wanda at Large for Fox, which didn't long last 10 episodes. It wasn't our show. We just hired to run it. And then um, and after that, Brian realized he was rich. And didn't have to do this anymore because his his husband's David Brian, okay. Brian Hargrove was my yeah. writing partner, uh, Brian Hargrove who I went to school with as well. He was my writing partner until um, 2004, uh, but he, he just he let me know he gave me some advance on and said I'm only going to do this for another year and then I'm out of here because um, Dave wants to move to New York and they're going to live in New York and that was fine. And so I, that's when I wrote book of Daniel because I needed to write something on my own that was edgy and out there and made people go oh cool cool writing i didn't that, think anybody would ever make it
0: and that was in the middle of titus
1: that was no i wrote book of daniel in 2004 okay uh right when brian told me he was gonna he was ready to take it take a take a walk and i thought i had to write something that was page turnery and that made people realize i could write an hour long and in, in addition to half hour because i already had a half hour pedigree um and i also saw the writing on the wall for sitcoms they were you know going to be fewer and farther between why is that I blame uh, um, two things: Ally McBeal and reality television. Mm-hmm. Because Ally McBeal—sorry, my fan is coming on. Here, is it going to screw I mean, up your sound?
0: Uh, I don't know. I don't, uh, how do you?
1: I can. I think I might be able to turn. Hang, uh, can fine. you pause it? Yeah, 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 I'll pause it. Let me. Let me. Uh,
0: Okay, so you were talking about... Well, I had just said I saw the
1: writing on the wall with sitcoms, where sitcoms were going, and you said, why is that?
0: Yeah, well, I I just want to know why is that, because I think that the post-Seinfeld Friends long-running sitcom, you know, that was 99.
1: Late 90s. Late 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 90s '90s. was the heyday. The 90s was must-watch TV and and then Things
0: fell apart after that. Well, I think, like I
1: say, Ally McBeal and and, uh, um, reality television, Ally McBeal showed that you could do comedy in hour-longs. And I think they were one of the first, maybe not the first, I don't have, I'm not a hist- historian, but they were one of the first that showed you could actually be pretty funny in an hour long and still have pathos and drama and you could mix. It was for sort of dramedy. And um, reality television, same thing. There was a sense of real and a lot of these people had uh, were funny. They would do funny things, they would, they would say funny things, they were humorous in a very real way. So you have real feeling hour long being funny and you have reality being funny or finding humor there. And suddenly, the four-camera staged uh, uh, sitcom feels fake, feels false, Mm -hmm. feels—I don't know. Some of them sneak past it, you know, and some of them still sneak past. Friends, but if you if you look at the older stuff, it still feels almost like it has a fake, broader the laugh that you can hear the audience laughing. It doesn't feel real. Right. And so, while there is a place for that, things like Big Bang Theory still work, you know. Most of the good, most of the successful half-hour comedy now is single-camera, no laugh track, and feel as real as possible.
0: It's
1: Sex and um, the City. Sex and the City was, yeah, I think that was even late '90s too. But that Sorry. was also real, single-camera, no mm-hmm. laugh track, and had drama in it. Most of them have some dramatic element to right. them too. Um, so really, the difference between the difference came between it used to be hour-long's and sitcoms. Now the difference is hour-long's and half-hours. Um, because it, it, I think the word sitcom got a negative connotation. It just, I knew that there was going to be less work in sitcoms. Right. I knew that I, if I was going to survive as a solo writer now, I not only had to prove that I had talent beyond the partnership, but that I could venture into other realms and successfully. And Book of Daniel got me a lot of recognition because it was a, it was a script that a lot of people read and they had good response to it. And that's all I designed it for. And then when it got made, at NBC it was the biggest surprise to me. I mean, I remember when when Kevin Reilly, who was running NBC at the time, called me at home, and said, "I want to buy your script." And I said, "I said Book of Daniel," and he said, "Yeah." I said, "Have you have you read it?" It
0: was the one hour. <laughs> it
1: was the one hour. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, it's you can see them all on YouTube. All eight episodes are on YouTube. God, you know why should I ever see a penny? But um, they're all on YouTube, and and it's, it was a really good. I was it was Aidan Quinn, Ellen Burstyn, James Rebhorn, Allison Pill. It's an um, awesome cast. I had a really good cast. I had, you know,
0: and where did it come from? Where did the idea come from? Beyond this, this professional need.
1: Well, it was sort of influenced a little bit by Michael's family. Michael has is, is comes from a very you know waspy Episcopalian family, and that fascinates me in terms of you know the 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 secrets and the secrets and lies that, that work through every family. But there's something about the way wasps handle it. Ar Gurney used to write plays about it. It was it was just fascinating to me. The whole wasp mentality is fascinating to me. And um they uh, and I also I was also always fascinated by the life of a priest. I was raised Catholic and the life of a priest was very specific, but episcopals can get married, and I thought, wow, add the complication of wives and kids to the notion of serving a church and a community in God, and that might be a really complex, complicated world. And I added to it an addiction to Vicodin. Uh, which I was going through myself at the time, mm. and, um, and a daughter who sold marijuana, and a, a gay son, and another adopted Asian son who was uh, fucking one of the, uh, one of the other uh, churchmen's daughters. Sure. And all of a sudden, it was a great, cool soap opera in an interesting world that hadn't been explored before. My biggest mistake with it was I had uh, Daniel talk to Jesus once in a while. Jesus mm. would suddenly be sitting next to him. And it wouldn't be...
0: Did it feel like a, like a let out? Like it's almost like...
1: Oh, no, I'm just not. I'm a gay man writing about Jesus. Right. They didn't like that. Oh. I got, I got... I had some death threats. I had some... Uh, I mean, the 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 um, American Family Association and the Parents Television Council, Council, which in 2006 was very powerful because, remember, we were in the middle of a yeah, war, w. two Bush, wars, and yeah. George W. Bush and the right wing had control of everything. And it was a... Uh, it was They were not going to let some, you know... Homo from Hollywood, write about their Jesus, Right. and so that was problem. That got me in big trouble. Religion in general on television, on network television, was very dangerous. They do you had think done cable
0: would have saved it today. Today um, it would be yeah.
1: today. They'd read the script and go, "Well, put a lot more sex into this. This, this <laughs> is boring." <laughs> right, right, you know, right. they wouldn't uh, today. All that, would all that be stuff
0: you just described. <laughs> oh,
1: it's so run of the mill today. Yeah, uh, but it would do. It would do fine on network today. Sure, it would have done fine on cable. Maybe a year yeah. after that. Right, but ad-supported network television. I mean, the AF, the American Family Association of Parents Television Council came out with 350,000 emails sent to uh, uh, NBC. We will boycott every anybody who ma- advertises on this show three weeks before we aired. Just we because it, even it was it.
0: a personification of Jesus.
1: Just because, yes, it was a personification. And they said, he's got this priest who's a drug-addicted priest. And like... You don't think that exists? You really oh, don't think yeah, that. exists? Yeah. You, you know I had yeah, so that's
0: some of the better things they are addicted
1: to. There was even some people that took issue with uh, he has a, his friend is a Catholic priest and he needs some help finding somebody and he you knows his friend the Catholic priest has a, a few friends, in you know a few Italian friends who might be able to help him. And I got uh, some shit about that and I thought really, you don't think the Catholic Church is involved at all with the mafia? I mean, I'm not saying that they're one runs the other, but I'm saying there is there is some crossover. Right. I grew up in the, in the Catholic Church in an Italian neighborhood. I know there's crossover. I've seen it, and we've all read about it. And I, and I thought, do you want me to write about the real scandal of the Catholic Church? Would that make you feel better, yeah. the one that's actually in the papers? No, you probably don't want that on TV. So why don't you just back off? And um, the Catholics left me alone, but but the, the real born agains and the fundamentalists came after me big time. I had, there was a lot of Christian support for the show, too. Don't let me, I don't want to give the wrong impression. There was, there were, there were Episcopalian blog, uh, bulletin boards and blogs, and people really liked it. Mm-hmm. And it was very, because it was a very human, loving portrayal of the church, of Jesus, of men, men who work in those, in those fields, and just the family troubles that you go through in those, in those environments. And so it was, it, it did, it got some good reviews. But they had zero advertisers. Burlington Coat Factory was the only oh, advertiser wow. that stuck around with us. Everybody else left, so we were canceling for three episodes.
0: What caused the Vicodin?
1: What now caused? we're getting all
0: personal. Like when you got into Vicodin, like what was the story? Oh, uh,
1: it was, um, uh, I had some foot surgery. Uh-huh. And, 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 and I had to have some recurring work done on my foot over oh. a period of like six or eight months. And uh, I had to take Vicodin for each time, and I just got to like it. Uh-huh. And then I discovered you could order it online. Which wow. is something that you know nobody should ever do. Right, right. <laughs> and I just got wrapped up in it. And this is, and I'm—I've oh, never dark smoked web pot. The dark web. I've never smoked pot. Right. I'm I'm such a a wimpy little virgin boy. I you know I I I drink once in a while. I have a drink. It, it doesn't do anything. I'm like I can put down a drink easily. But Vicodin, man, that got me. That grabbed me by the balls.
0: How hard is that to? I mean, somebody. I've been straight edge my whole life, so I don't have a lot of. Like you, I don't have a frame of reference too much on what that stuff does, but how hard was that process of, and and how 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 scary was it for you to to like identify that and be like, okay, if if I like, how, when did you know that there was a problem? Oh, I think if
1: you're taking twenty five pills a day of anything, you know yeah, it's a problem. Absolutely. So I kind of knew it was a problem a, few, a couple of years before I stopped doing it. I knew I, you know, but like every addict, I told myself I've got control of this. I'm taking. I even, I even made sure that I didn't drink while I was taking Vicodin because you're not supposed to make, mix alcohol with acetaminophen because sure. it's very dangerous for you. And I was very careful about my, the way I handled my drugs, and um, and, and I was, I just, I knew that it was wrong. I mm-hmm. knew that it was bad for me. I knew that I shouldn't be doing it. But the feeling made it worth it because it's just you feeling of euphoria for me. Some people can't take Vicodin like at all. They hate it. They hate the That's way right. it makes it feel. Um, I loved it. And, and so um, when I got back from doing Book of Daniel, I finally realized I have to stop doing this stuff. Uh, I have to get off this stuff. So I went to AA, and AA really uh, gave me a terrific roadmap, not just for... Why was I taking Vicodin? Why did I feel like I needed that extra help? And where what was missing? And how could I find that help, that support somewhere else? But also, it gives you such a great roadmap for living. I don't know why they don't teach the 12 steps in elementary school. Right. Because it's just about taking responsibility, trying to do well, being of service wherever you can be. If somebody asks you for help, you say yes. I mean, it's not... These are not earth-shattering new concepts that we don't know about. It's the golden rule.
0: My friend, uh, A friend of mine... Uh, I, I would put these, you know, as as I've gone through like my divorce and my rewiring of my brain through meditation and, and books, books, books. I uh, I started to tell my students this thing that I was telling myself was that it's just progress, not perfection, right? Like, yeah, aim for progress, not perfection. Yep. And a friend of mine came up to me and said, "Are you an AA?" Yeah, and that's I, an and AA I was for like, "Well," and I was like, "He goes, that's that's like the founder of AA says that." Yeah, and, and I don't theory. know where I had heard it. I just remembered that I had started to say it to myself be like all right dude like you don't have to be perfect because you but it's almost like the rule like uh, the the idea i give to friends who have you have those friends who want to write and they don't know how to write da, 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 and i say hey just write two shitty pages a day you know like mm-hmm. like just, just get, get your, just progress just, yeah. just do some progress and in two shitty pages is such an easy do what's benchmark what's you yeah that you don't you don't have to write moby dick in a day you just right. have to write two shitty pages and you'll find out that you End up putting the ben- the pressure's gone, and you end up writing five shitty pages, or two good pages, or something other than two shitty pages. You'll just do well, it. there's nothing
1: that, there's nothing that talks that that embodies progress, not perfection, better than television, right? Because the, you know the fact is it's it's a train that's moving down down the track, and it may not be perfect, but it's going to get finished, mm-hmm. and so you know, it's and and then you move on. So it's just in terms of getting things going, but progress, not perfection. Uh, keep your side of the street clean. Don't mm-hmm. worry about the other side. All that kind of thing comes, comes out of AA, and I wish they taught it everywhere.
0: Where, where do you, um, where have you seen missed opportunities or compromises where you're like, oh, that that could have gone out of the park? Like I gotta hit that one out of the park. Hmm. And for various reasons, the, either they either you saw it as a failing, and, and at what point did it, did it like a, a a perceived failure turn into a good thing? Does that make sense?
1: Um, yeah, I think so. I I, I mean I. I have to say I don't really much think about things when they're over. Sure, I tend to move on pretty quickly. I stay in touch with people from my childhood, and and I, you know I always and of course you look back at things and I wish, you know I think is there something I could have done with Titus to keep Christopher from boiling over, and is there something because he Star was of the show,
0: Christopher Titus?
1: Yeah, he yeah. was. He sort of lived in anger at the time. and I mean, I haven't seen him in years. I don't know what he's like now today. But he And he recognizes this. He's talked about it in his one-man shows about how he kind of brought down the show almost single-handedly. How many seasons? Are, have you uh, two and a half. Fifty-four episodes.
0: And you want to get hundreds of the, the gold. A hundred?
1: That was then, these days. Fifty-four episodes. We'd be in syndication and all over, the, all over iTunes oh, if, it, if it was today. But they won't sell it. They won't sell it into syndication. Fox has said, we're not going to do this uh, my personal belief is that they, the people who are still in charge of Fox were still there when we did the show, and Christopher alienated a lot of people oh, at, at Fox, okay. and and um, I think he, and I think these people who are still there still feel a certain sort of anger about it, and they know that once the show is sold somewhere, you're back in business, because pretty much everybody who sells a show in syndication ends up having to sue the network and the studio for the money that they supposedly owe them, and it gets messy and ugly, and eventually people pay out but it always happens i don't know anybody who's gone into syndication they didn't have to hire a lawyer and an arbitrator to get their money so i think they don't want that to happen and and um so they haven't sold it anywhere it's one of the very few shows i think that's ever been made that's never been seen again it never never airs anywhere uh i think you might be able to find some of it on youtube but there's 54 episodes but you know he just he was you know he was dealing with issues from his childhood and stuff and and uh and uh I just I just don't know if there was anything else I could have said to him to make him just stop and and stop saying bad things about the network president and stop insisting it be his way or the highway but sort of get on board and you know row with the rest of us but I, I don't think there is. Honestly, I don't think there is anything I could have said. I think I tried every version of something I could have tried. I don't have a lot of remorse. Mm-hmm. You know, sure it would have been great if Titus had syndicated and I made 100 million dollars but I didn't. And right. and but I don't I don't think I don't think back on things and and to me, um, I don't think... I ask, but
0: same yeah, thing with failures. Yeah, well, yeah, that's why I ask if, if they were perceived, and then they turned into something that... Well, I think the sense. Book of
1: Daniel was probably perceived as a failure. It only aired three episodes. We made eight, and they canceled it after four. Okay. And uh, I suppose that perception of that was, was a failure, but I never looked at it that way. To me, I made this, exactly the show I wanted to make, and I was thrilled with it, and I have the DVDs of the eight episodes, and I think it's great. Um, it was wrong. I, I was ahead of my time, or behind my time, or wherever I was. Um, it wasn't the right time or the right place, so it didn't work. But I learned something from every experience I ever have. I think we all do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not special. We all learn something if we allow ourselves to be open to that possibility, rather than resenting it. I don't resent any of the stuff that went down with Titus. I think at the time I was pissed, but I don't resent. I wouldn't want to go. I don't want to go back. If somebody said let's reboot Titus, I would say no. You can do that without me. I'm not gonna. Yeah, I'm well, not going to go down that road again because right. it was too painful. But, but uh, I don't resent. I don't have any resentments about it. I, you know, it came. It did. I. I had a great time. I. Had, I had a really great time. I mean, I. I pretty much have a great time. Pretty, pretty much whatever I'm doing, I, I find something to enjoy. That doesn't mean I don't bitch about it. Um, I, you know, I'm just as crabby as the next person. <laughs> I can find something negative to say about anything, just like anybody else can. Someone's but...
0: gonna end up making a short film about you. Yes, that's
1: fine. Go ahead, but uh, you know, I, I am my I am my father's son. Uh, although my no, I say my dad was never like that. But his sisters. I would say. Well, they lived, they lived at home with their parents their whole lives. They never left oh, the house. Wow. Yeah, they stayed there the whole time. He. I have a feeling. I, I'm quite certain there was some dysfunction in that family. I don't know the specifics of it, but. For, for the three girls, there were three girls at the time. One girl in, in her 40s finally got married, but the other two stayed at home until, well, I mean, one of them just passed away.
0: It's like Cinderella's sisters.
1: Yeah. They just stayed at the house. They never left home. So that's got to fuck with you. I mean, that's yeah. got to take you to a certain direction. And, uh, but, my, you know, all the boys joined the Navy when they were 18, and they left the house, and they became their own people. Right. Um, I, and my dad was, my dad never, I don't, he would, com- the only time I ever heard my dad complain was in traffic. He hated traffic, and I got that from him in spades. And uh, but I, he hated he hated being caught in traffic. He hated idiot drivers, and he would say so. But the rest of it, I, I rarely heard him complain about work, except if it was just exhausting. Yeah. But he never, he just didn't complain. You know, he he did, he was a depression baby, so he had life so much better than his parents had it that he was just thrilled to be able to, you know, save money and put food on the table and buy whatever he wanted to whenever he wanted to. You know, if he wanted to buy a new thing, he bought it. He was a geek. He was a geek extraordinaire. He had a ham radio set up, WB4MCU. That was my dad's call numbers. And really? WB4MCU, and he had ham radios. He built every television we ever had out of a Kit. Whoa. He, yep. He built every computer ever he worked off. He, uh, he built himself. He built all his computers. because That's when they were monsters. You know, they yeah, sat yeah, on the yeah, whole yeah. desk. But he built every computer. He built all the kinds of... He built all that shit. He knew how to do all of that stuff. He taught me electronics and... Uh, electric, electrical work. He taught me plumbing. He taught me carpentry and and masonry. And I knew how to, he taught me how to do all that shit. Um, so you know, he was he was he was, but he was thrilled to be able to do that. You know, um, and also building all that stuff for yourself was part of the mentality of coming out of the depression. Why buy it when I can build it for half the price? Right. So that's what he did. He built my first computer that I wrote on. Really? Uh, yeah. That's yeah. He never really saw my career as a writer. That's the that's the thing that sort of makes me saddest. That he died in eighty seven. Right before I got my first writing job, and uh, he'd see me on act, he'd see me uh, off Broadway and stuff. And um, it's funny, he came to see me in the Normal Heart. I was in the original production of wow. the Normal Heart at the Public, and uh, I wasn't the I wasn't the original cast, but I joined that production sure. halfway through. And uh, he came to see that, and he didn't know I was gay uh, yet. I mean, he knew, but he didn't know the way every the way, pa- the way parents were in the seventies didn't want to talk about it. Um, and uh, but he said he, after that play, he said, "Wow." That's the first time you really got into their heads. That was really, I really never got into their heads that way. That was amazing. And I said, oh, yeah, it's kind of cool. He said, that one guy had to kiss that other guy. Are they both, are they both like gay? And I said, no, no, they're, uh, I think they're both straight, actually. He said, oh, how do you do that? How do you kiss another guy like that? Wow, could you do that as an actor? And I said, "Yeah, I could probably do that.
0: <laughs> you know, like, how, how did you ultimately let your dad know? Uh,
1: we never had the talk. By the, time, by the time I was comfortable enough with who I was uh, in the 80s, uh, you know, AIDS was out there in, a, in full force and people were dying. Would, and he was already having chest pains. And I'm like, I'm not going to play that scenario. I'm not going to make his life more stressful. Right. It's fine. He, you know, we never talked. He knew Michael was my best friend and roommate because I met Michael in 82. My dad died in 87. Okay. So he knew because Michael was always around. He's
0: kept his roommate a long time.
1: Well, he actually said to right. me, when I got into Juilliard in 1978... He said, just do me two favors. Don't change your name, because it was the same as his, Jack Kenny. And he said, and don't be gay. Now, hmm. I don't think any father tells a son he thinks is straight not to be gay.
0: Oh, yeah, okay.
1: You know? You just yeah. don't. Why would it occur to
0: yeah, you? Yeah. My, my father never, <laughs> no, never no,
1: said that. My father's not going to say that to a straight kid. Hey, yeah, don't right. be gay. You're like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, so So I think he knew. I think he was trying to save me the pain. Because all that anybody knew about homosexuals, in the 70s was drag yeah. and jail. And you get beat up. Yeah, get beat up, go to jail, get a miserable, painful life. And, and then they added and then And they they then guess. you add and then you die of AIDS. Yeah. And that was all they knew. There was no role models. There was no Will and Grace. There was no anything. There was no magazines. There was no, ad I mean, there might have been an advocate, but it was localized and tiny. That was The New York native was the New York gay paper, but that didn't make it outside of the village. And I mean, now
0: I see what you're saying about Will and Grace.
1: Huge. Yeah. Huge. For a kid to grow up, for me to grow up, when I was in high school, the only gay images, the only s- gay adjacent images I had were Paul Lind on Hollywood Squares and yeah. Liberace, and maybe Charles Nelson Reilly because they were kind of broad. Right. But that was it. Those were the only possible images. And the rest, where people got arrested, you know, put into jail, arrested at rest stops, like shit like invisible. that. Yeah, completely invisible. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the, the 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 there was a joke once the diff- the, the difference between uh, being black and being gay. Was it, it was it was harder to explain to your parents that you, oh no 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 black kid had to had to uh, come out to his parents that he was black mm-hmm. you know that your yeah. parents are already on board yeah. but gay was like you know and so we hid like nobody's business I tried I wanted to kill myself at fifteen I oh put a God. knife to my wrist because I knew Jesus was crying every time I had a thought and I mean it was just and there were no images to grow up watching Will and Grace. It would've been I mean, and to see how our parents watch it and go, hey, that's okay, it's cool, they're fun, they're
0: friends, they're cool. Huge. And I remember for myself, the, the biggest images for me was Pedro Zamora on the real world San Francisco. Yeah, and, I remember and, that. And I remember seeing That was in the nineties, uh, right? It was ninety two, ninety three, ninety four, somewhere there, and in Clinton Bill Clinton spoke at his funeral. I like yeah. just I remember the Pedro Zamora thing just being so big. And it's in it, his his best friend in the house, Judd Winnick, has been on the show. He's a comic book author and, and a cartoonist now. And he was then. And, uh, and it's been awesome getting to know Judd because his book, Pedro and Me, is such a, a great document of that time in the real world house. And getting to be friends with this person who was a public face of not just the gay movement, but the AIDS movement. Because before that, all we, all we had was um, Ryan White. Remember Ryan oh, White's uh, book? Do I remember Ryan White? Yeah, I remember Ryan White. Like, like reading Ryan White's book. Well, and that was the
1: fate that we were all supposed to be assigned to. Right. But, you know, that, there's a big difference there. Bill Clinton spoke at his funeral. Right. Ronald Reagan didn't say the word AIDS until 1987. We knew it was killing people in 81. Mm-hmm. And Ed Koch, uh, I forget who was governor of New York... Uh, uh, Ronald Reagan. No one would say the word AIDS to say this is a disease that's out there. Here's how to not get it. Mm-hmm. No one would talk about it. They didn't want education about it. They just they, they figured oh, it's killing. It's killing the faggots. Fine, let it kill them. And I mean, that seemed to be the attitude we were getting. And and I don't think it was until Ronald Reagan's friend Rock Hudson died of it that right. it first came into. his, oh maybe I should do something because nothing. I mean you know it was so I, I consign the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people with Ronald Reagan. If he Absolutely. had spoken I mean, up. that's an outbreak. If he had spoken yeah. up in 83, the number of people who would have gone, oh, oh, that's how it's, well, maybe I should wear a condom. You know, it, they'd be alive today. In I mean, Ru- young men, I buried half my phone book. Right. You know, young men in their early 20s and late, mid to late 20s, they were all dying. Older men too, but kids. They were kids. We just found out we could have sex and now we found out it kills you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just, it was a horror show. The 80s. Michael and I clung to each other like 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 nobody's business, like 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 moss on a tree. We were just like hang on to I each other. I think we know
0: how you clung to each other. No, well, you we're know, try and be nice about well, it. Well, you know, I'm
1: trying to say we don't. I don't want to say who was the moss and who was the tree. We'll get into that later. But uh, you know,
0: it's just uh, we saved each other's lives. You know. Yeah, the Ryan White thing was. I actually look back and, I, and I'm amazed that my Texas middle school I had to read that you know and, 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 I'm, and I think it's amazing that that happened but those were yeah no I'm, I'm putting in the context what you said at the beginning of the hour about um, about how our culture shifts the,
1: the conversation um, and it shifts in both directions it seems like it shifts forward and back mm-hmm. depending on what side of the divide you're on yeah. it, it, it shifts all over the place and I, I, I like to think that things are getting incrementally better As time goes by. But sometimes it feels like, you know, I don't remember this. Maybe there were this many police shootings of young black men in the 60s. Maybe there were. I don't remember it because it was only news three hours a day. Sure. It was news at noon, 6, and 11. That was it. Yeah. Other than that, you had to read the newspaper. Look at that. You had to read. Yeah. But um, so it's it's uh, it just feels to me like, and there was just another. I mean, the the, the kid in Sacramento, you feel like, when, how did how is it even conceivable that that could have happened, with all those mistakes already having been made? I don't want to believe that these cops are racist and they wanted to kill a black kid, but I do believe that they overreacted, reacted too quickly, and reacted out of a fear that came out of something other than the actual fear in the moment.
0: Is that the kid who was shot in his backyard? Shot in his backyard with yeah, his cell phone in his with hand. Cell phone in his hand.
1: Yeah. Uh, Stefan Clark.
0: I'm, I'm not sure. I can't remember. I'm sorry. I'm for me for not well, he was standing in his backyard.
1: I think he was chased there. I don't, I don't know all the all details. Right. It doesn't matter. He was shot once on the side and six or seven times in the back. Okay? That bad. is not a dangerous criminal. Okay? He didn't have a gun. He wasn't firing at them, and they, and they shot 20 times at him and hit him eight times. What's wrong? What's going on? Where is that fear coming from? I, like I say, I don't believe that these are actively racist policemen, but I do believe that there's a fear in them that is fed by something that is not good. And somehow we've got to get rid of that fear. You know, there's, there's a fear. There was a fear of a female president. There was a fear of a black president and that boiled for eight years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, 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 I don't. I just don't know where all these fears come from because that's one thing AA teaches us is that fear and anger are useless emotions. Unless you're being chased by a bear, drop fear out right. of your out of your emotional vocabulary. It doesn't get you anywhere. You know, aside from fight or flight, you don't need fear and anger. I mean they haven't really needed fear and anger since the cavemen. Right. You know, I right. suppose if you're caught in a situation, sure. But but the idea of operating out of fear of someone else, of what they're gonna do. If we all stopped that, I know it's impossible. I'm speaking of you, of course, utopia. But but if we all stopped that, it would all be a lot easier.
0: Jack, what is next? Do you believe for you? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There's a, there's a few irons in the fire. I got <laughs> well, some stuff short. going on. You your short film.
1: I have my short film. I shot a short film in January with Jane Lynch and Kate Mulgrew you got your short and Braxton role. Molinaro. and uh, and yeah, we got that short film. We're going to be doing festival circuits. We already got into one festival. We, uh, IFS 2018 Los Angeles Film Festival. What's the, what's
0: the name of your short?
1: Uh, the Birds Sing Too Loud. The We're Birds on Facebook. Sing too loud. We're on Facebook at The Birds Sing Too Loud on Facebook. Okay. Uh, we have some presence. We're building a website. And um, and uh, as long as Facebook stays viable, who knows? It may go down any day now.
0: To be ready um, to transfer it into Russian. Uh, I'm, very, kidding. All right. I'm kidding. That's <laughs> right. You know, could,
1: could, I, could, I, could, I could do subtitles. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, so the, the birds was fun. I don't know if that's going to turn it, turn into anything. It might be a series. Maybe I can sell it. We'll see. Um, and uh, hopefully, I'll be on someone's show, helping them to run it, or running someone's show as well. Who knows? I'm, I'm available.
0: <laughs> I I was only asking about lunch next month. <laughs> oh, I'm is it next month already? Uh, well, you you let me know. Geeks gave us. Uh, we love you. We've been keeping this thing going for. I guess I've been podcasting twelve years now, um, and hanging out with folks like Jack definitely makes it worth it. Um, you can find him online. He, you're on Twitter and all that.
1: I'm on Twitter, but I don't I don't tweet much because it's right. just too much sort of anger and fear and sure. and, 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 and fury really that comes at you on Twitter. I'm on I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm not really. I don't know. You feel I'm at, at Bumpy Night on Twitter. If somebody mm-hmm. really wants to reach me, I check it once in a while at sure. Bumpy Night at Twitter. And um, but mostly, I kind of just sort of. Keep to myself. <laughs> I find uh, that mentally healthier.
0: Well, you'll be hearing, whatever Jack does, you'll hear it through us yeah. over here at Geekscape because this is what we do. Uh, we love you, Geekscapists. Um, stay tuned for another episode next week. Uh, over and out.